1: that music as it fades into the distance. It is almost two minutes past the hour of nine o'clock. You are on 3RRR. This is Radio Marinara. I'm Anthony Boxhaw. And I am John Ford. And it is indeed the end of Daylight Savings. We're back to normal time. I'd, I'd like to think
0: of it the other way around. But that's not the case. I oh, know, but I'm like <laughs> reframing my existence. Thank you, John. You're living in the summer. That's I a am that's, that's a real beachy I'm kind of in way the to. Seventies yeah, 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 it's yeah. a real beachy way to go. Um, the um,
1: it is. If you are thinking, "Gosh, those doctors sound funny," and that music is different, it's because it is actually an hour ago. That's
0: right. It is two past nine. <laughs> yeah, two nine, nine, not ten. So, if you're waking up and you've got back your hour. Do you ever feel that? I feel that. When when does it happen now, October or something? For for some reason, it tends to always happen when I'm on radio. So I always lose that hour. hour I have to be very, very vigilant. (laughs) But now I get it back. And and here we are. I don't know who they are, but they take our hour. Mm. Anyway,
1: we got it back last night. Yes. And we got to sleep.
0: Well, I was at the beach yesterday, so I took advantage of the last day of Daylight Savings. And it was lovely. Did you? Yes. My children didn't. They didn't take advantage of well, it. Well some of them were up, but God knows what time it
1: is oh, in right. real time yeah, now. No, no, that's and true. Dancing true. on
0: trampolines <laughs> looking for eggs. Ah And happy Easter Happy of Easter to everyone. Yes. yes. And, and thank, thank you, to Timothy. Yeah, thank you.
1: Thank you, Tim. Tim is I, I have run out of superlatives. <laughs> I have I I have tried. I have I have, I have I've I've out myself of of superlatives for what Tim brings to morning radio. Tim has redefined what to expect on early morning radio. He is, is there a, what is, what is above a God? Um... (laughs) I love it. He's a beautiful man and I
0: love his radio. I love his Thank work. Thank you very much, Tim. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try and find a better superlative next week. <laughs> yes, next yes. I month. think you can hear that thesaurus out. We <laughs> should I have the triple so. R thesaurus. We do, too. We have <laughs> a big show today. H1. Yes, we do. We do. Not, of course, anywhere near as big as Tim. No, 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 no. But, um, no. It's, um, but ours, it might be a little bit more focused on the marine world, I <laughs> <what> we think. <laughs> yeah, I
1: think so. Where, mm. where should we start?
0: Uh, well, um, we've got a whole lot of news coming up, um, which I will not bore you with right now because it is really exciting and yeah. it will be in the time. But. Uh, I'm going to be talking a little bit about the South China Sea and China's maritime expansion into that particular space and how it's hotted up in the last couple of years. And it is very interesting. It is. It is. It's very, yes, and we're going to try and steer
1: clear of um, very difficult geopolitical discussions, but fail. <laughs> um, and, and then as a segue, a really interesting kind of related issue of marine urbanisation. Mm. Marine urbanisation. Do so that to leave cities
0: that on the sea, in the sea? I'm
1: going to leave that hanging. Next to the sea? Did you hear this? I know. Oh, I'll, yeah. leave, I'll leave those uh-huh. questions hanging. Fantastic. Uh, how about some news though?
0: <laughs> yeah. Look, um, I've, I just want to start off with a with a with a really interesting one that came out last week. I saw it in the uh, in the Herald Sun actually. But Greenpeace commissioned a study into the origin, as in what actually is the flake that we're at, was at 23 fish and, shop sh- fish and chip shops around Melbourne. I so was okay. Shay. Sh- flake okay it's meant to be gummy shark that's the the food standard however the food
1: school shark a lot of it
0: okay yes this is this is what's going to be revealed so there is a there is a food standard um which says there is a standard which says that you should and this is not legally binding but that you should name um only gummy shark and also rig which is a very similar species which comes from new zealand as flake so you shouldn't. Know that. You shouldn't actually have school shark or any other kind of shark as flake. However, as I said, this is a, a voluntary, recommended, but voluntary standard. Don't we love those industry codes? Yes, that's right. Because they always work. Yes. Well, <laughs> well, they're they great work, codes, yeah.
1: but they only work in things like the airline industry where you have an enormous interest in doing the same thing the code wants you to do, mm-hmm. i.e., mm-hmm. keeping planes in the air. Mm-hmm. You know, enormous commercial interest. Yeah. Where you don't
0: have an enormous commercial interest in this case. That's it. There's nothing. You and know, from a, certainly might. from a sustainability point of view, it's very, very important because the gummy shark fishery um, here locally is very very different to a lot of the shark fisheries around the world. Is in it? that, in that the way it's managed and that it's much more much more sustainable okay. than most shark fisheries. And if you and some say it is, you know, the quite unique in that way. Okay. Um, so if it is important to differentiate the gummy shark from other sharks from around the world or for even from around Australia. Before you tell us what they are, can I have a? guess? Gif- Yes. Go on. With some of them. Are. No, but only when you're up to that spot. Okay. Yep. No no problem. Yeah. Um, well, I'm about up to that oh, right well, now. So right. what they okay, did is yeah. they did some yeah. sort of genetic tests and so on, right. on and to find out. Actually, what what what, what was it? Is this okay. really government shark or not? So what do you think it was, mainly? Okay. It's going to be three things. Okay. Yep. And, and
1: none of them have fun names. <laughs> Ratfish. <laughs> elephant fish <laughs> and school shark well all of which are cartilaginous fish or yes, common names yes. of cartilaginous fish well
0: they didn't find any of your of those no, two really? wonderful ones but they found a lot of school shark yeah. and the school shark wasn't is thought not to be local school shark. Now, sco- oh. local school shark um, is uh, they don't catch very much of it because it is um, significantly depleted. Because um, they used to catch. Because a lot they of used to that. catch a lot of it. Um, but it most likely comes from South Africa. No so way. we're actually talking about imported um, imported shark in this way. So there's also, and this is all gets around to sort of seafood labelling and whether it's required. And, and there's been a lot of movement on this la- on this lately with Matt uh, Matt Evans and the uh, and the What's the Catch program and mm-hmm. Greenpeace has been really pushing this. But the need for sort of an enforceable fish name standard, but also country of origin labelling when it comes to oh, yeah. cooked yeah. fish, and this is sort of it is not required in a say fish and chip shop or a restaurant or someone to have a country of a, of, of of origin labelling. I think it's really important. I think we should do really? it so we can so actually should... differentiate when so, we're there. So the th- the flake that I thought I was buying gummy, which I you know I don't mind buying
1: gummy because mm. I do know that Australian gummy fishery is pretty sustainable. Mm. Um,
0: that could have been School Shark from somewhere. Off it could have been School Shark from South Africa or New Zealand or something similar. So goodness me. Um, so there's some problems there which need mm. to be addressed and, and good on them for uh, for doing that. But um, anyway, there's a little bit of little bit of news that turned that's into an interesting piece. But um, should we do some weather? Let's we do to the yes, weather. Yes, let's do the weather. weather. So uh, our six-day forecast. Well, Melbourne, to oh. d- Melbourne today. So we'll start with Melbourne today is 22 with possibly a little bit of rain two. and uh, but quite more sunshine. 22. 22 with a Twenty-two. bottom of 14. Uh, tomorrow it's going 18 with a shower, too cloudy and light winds. Um, that's a nice day to be out on the water as long as you bring a jumper. Um, and then Tuesday, 16 degrees, a few showers and so on. Um, so it looks like yeah, it's, it's... Sorry? It's, it's, did you just say... 16. 16, I don't know. And what, know, a minimum of like 4? 12. No, it's a minimum of 12. So we've got a very little, it's one of those days Tuesday. where it doesn't change much at all, I imagine. 16. 90% chance of rain, 5 to 10 mils. So Tuesday is an inside day, people. Love, if you're going back to work. I, mean, I just love Melbourne. Like, last Wednesday, it was 29, <laughs> I was 30.
1: Like, mm-hmm. I just love this place. It is such a nice town. Nowhere <laughs> else in the world
0: would you ever have that so it's going to continue pretty much the week so we've got a shower to two or cloudy for most of the rest of the week around um, between 18 and 21 degrees so that's what's going on um, we're really getting into autumn Um not it got nothing there about waves or uh, it probably does swell Surf Coast is offering the best waves this morning with fun sized swell <laughs> oh you know what that means fun sized swell that means nothing yeah it means nothing that It means, means the people at Bells Beach are that, going oh, what the uh, hell's the point of doing this <laughs> uh, uh, the water temperature is 18 degrees which is quite nice um Good conditions at Phillip Island, 1.75 meters for experienced surfers only. Um, Mornington Peninsula, it, it say, l- lumpy two meter. No, it doesn't. Okay. That was that was my inflection. That intonation was lovely. Oh, but but uh, Mornington Peninsula is bumpy and lumpy. Oh, see, that is definitely a surfing term, isn't it? Yeah, bumpy and lumpy, <laughs> bumpy and lumpy two meter waves, man. I think um, that I think more about soup. When I hear that, yeah, <laughs> it's Bumpy and lumpy. Soup, you know, I right? a little bumpy and lumpy soup. Anyway, so that's what's happening right now. Um, and the extended surf should uh, swell should be steady through tomorrow, and winds are expected to be favourable.
1: There you go. So I love it the looks way like they it's say that
0: winds expected to be favourable.
1: Mm. To what? To surfing. Oh, okay. Sorry. which is
0: which is quite different, say from yachting, which well, is quite it, it, different for for boating or diving or fishing or, exactly, or, or kite flying. Um, yeah, indeed,
1: yeah. kite flying. How often you want to, you want favourable winds for kite
0: flying? And yeah. what have you got? <laughs> For surfing, That's right. Oh. <laughs> I've got an update now. No, you have you got an update? This from the Sea Shepherd. Yeah, because, right. you know okay. There's a lot, there's sort of particularly in the media here in Australia, there's sort of a real focus on their uh, anti-whaling activities, the Sea Shepherd, which, which yes. is fantastic. Don't get me wrong. Which is one of the big, big things. Which is certainly, but, but mm. f- for, for me, as a b- bit more interest in fisheries, the work that they do around combating illegal fishing around the world is brilliant, is absolutely okay. fantastic, is more extensive than, uh, yeah, the, than the whale work and um, often goes reasonably unheralded. So I want to... can I ask, is it as um, do they use similar methods? Is it
1: do they take a big boat out and stand in front of other big boats and stop them from moving around, or is it a little bit? Is there a different method?
0: Yes, um, they they do, but it tends to be less directly confrontational, right. um, and it tends to be yeah because there's with, with with the whaling, there tends to be these big boats and they yeah. sit there and they won't give up. Whereas, uh, and, and they don't consider themselves to be illegal. Yes. So they don't consider themselves to be a legal activity. However, when it comes to illegal fishing, these boats are very clearly not doing the ah, right thing. So right. they want to get away gotcha. from okay. there, as opposed to right. directly combat. Yeah. So, so what they do is they go there and they make a lot of noise and say, "Look here, look mm. here," and the, and the bad guys run away. Uh, yeah, pretty much. Right. And they um, they interfere with their fishing activities. And uh, in do this, they wind this up, this this up their nets. Yes, yes. It's so fantastic. the um, so the Bob Barker, yeah, um, yeah. which is mm, mm. has been chasing wh- uh, whalers. In the that's, past. That's the... That's um, a trimaran, I think. Is yeah, I think that's the really cool-looking yeah, one. Yeah. 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 Anyway, it's been chasing an illegal tooth fishing boat. So this is a Patagonian yeah. tooth fishing boat, yeah. which has been fishing in the... Um, around Antarctica. And so there's an agreement with all the countries that sort of have territory in Antarctica about the fishing there and what yeah. they can take and what they can't. But there's a number of illegal boats or boats who are not sanctioned to fish there. Um, and this is one of them. So they're called the Bandit Six, these six boats Particularly really? these blacklisted right. six boats, big ones, and uh, this is so one of the and one of the flagged under what Liberian flags or something. Well, Who yeah, I'll, I'll get to oh, this sorry. one Ooh, particularly, but um, so they've been chasing this boat for over a hundred days. Really? So since last year they've been chasing it, and they've gone all the way from Antarctica to West Africa. God. So they're currently off, off West Africa, and this one's called the Thunder, which is kind of the I think it's the biggest sort of of this <laughs> yeah, the this Bandit Six. It's is like, this is it's like awesome. Maid Max. I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the Bandit Six led. By thunder. <laughs> and it's blacklisted, so it can't, it, can't, uh, it can't fish in Antarctica. It's flagged in Nigeria. It is, wow. However, because of this publicity, Nigeria has now delisted it, deregistered it. So it is now officially... A pirate boat. It really is horror.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Hang on, so 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 it's so bad that Nigeria, which is not necessarily known for obeying every international law when it comes
0: to maritime stuff, and, and say oil, <laughs> Nigeria has gone though. no, no. no, that's no we we, we don't have anything to do with this. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. So it's um, it is believed that it is owned by Spain by by Spanish operators. <laughs> um. Anyway, just well, that's not confirmed, but that is the idea, and they certainly they speak Spanish on board. Apparently. They don't. Anyway. don't. No. So the the sea shepherd so speak pirate, the other uh, the other um, boat, I can't quite remember its name now. Uh, recovered seventy two kilometres of nets. Oh my goodness! From me. this boat, so this boat had seventy two kilometres of gill nets out there. Um, and Si shepherd round them up and sue shepherd round them up so cool. it removed them which is really cool um, but one last little bit anyway they're still chasing they're still chasing them um, but it looks like they've got no port to go to because they are now a, a pirate ship. so it looks like that oh, yeah, Sue shepherd's winning this i
1: tell you what if you're going to if it's going to be a coast the east or west coast of africa or the coast that you want to yeah, take that's your true. Pirate <laughs> ship. you know like
0: really <laughs> true, yeah. you know like, like if there's going to be port. a coast where you can yeah. find a port it's yeah, going to be true. along there somewhere <laughs> um, but the last little, uh, addition to this story is that this strain company. Austral, um, Austral Fisheries, um, who actually fishes legally for toothfish in Australian waters mm. and in Antarctic waters, and actually is Marine Stewardship Council certified. So these are the good guys. These are the good guys, yeah, yeah, Australian. Just to make it clear that so, we're yeah, they're it clear that these are the good guys. Certified sustainable by yeah. the Marine Stewardship Council, yeah. um, uh, have entered the chase by sending a boat oh, to tail the thunder. No way. So, because the problem with the Bob, <laughs> the Bob Barker was that it was running out of supplies. They were eating sort so of good four guys. month old oranges. And so. So <laughs> they've helped them out, which is which oh, is really anyway. It. So it's good to to see that happening. Oh, yeah. that is sensational! That is so funny.
1: <laughs> but yeah, you know, and it must be so frustrating for the for the good industry players, mm. you know, because one of those boats will strip out, you know, their quota in what mm. I don't know. Yeah, months,
0: well, seventy-two days, kilometers weeks. of nets. Yeah, quickly, I mean that's
1: uh, you know, and they're and they're busting their guts and probably mm. paying more, and you know, there's well, a, a break-even rate for them. Adhere to which the be, regulations, yeah.
0: which um, are, are reasonably costly. So yeah.
1: yeah. Mm. And it must be worth something because if they're if they're spending the money to send out, you know,
0: <laughs> their own, you know,
1: pro bono. Yeah, that's wow, right. That's fantastic. Mm. Oh, a sensational update. Um, I wanted to draw attention to an article in the conversation. Actually, uh, Where was it, about a month ago, less than a month. Yeah, a month ago today, um, by um Andrew F. Jo- um Andrew F. Johnson, from Scripps, um, and it's really interesting. I'll tell you what it's called. Just finding the data. Coral reefs' physical conditions set biological rules of nature until people show up. Dun, dun, dun. So, so for, for anyone who's ecologically trained, you kind of listen to this and go, uh-huh, yeah, whatever. But it, what it turns out to be is that so, so many studies on coral reefs, in particular ecosystems in general, look at and document the effects of humans. Very, very few have stepped back and imagined what's actually happening in the absence of humans at okay, a holistic level, so the whole reef ecosystem. And so these guys, along with NOAA, they're from Scripps in um, San Diego and NOAA in Hawaii and a couple of others, got a whole bunch of data from 39 coral islands and atolls that are US, you know, owned, run, protected, whatever, across the Pacific. And they compared just about everything they could find. And they broke them into two groups. There were uh, 15 where there were humans on the islands mm-hmm. and there were 24 without. They called the human ones impact and then the other ones are called low impact because, of mm-hmm. course, even those they're not humans, that humans visit and yep. rubbish washes up and everything. So there is a human impact. But, but essentially they're not human-mediated. The, the way it works is not controlled by humans. So what they did was they went and measured all kinds of stuff, you know, all of the the benthic communities, all the things that live on the bottom, so the corals and the algae and how they interact and which ones are dominant when and, you know, what the sun does to it, what the waves do to it and what the salinity does to it and all of the physical stuff. And they basically, beautifully now, ecology is at the stage where on those ones where there's not humans, you can kind of predict... You can kind of look at the at the physical variables and you can predict what happens. And you can say, oh, okay, so at this time of the year, with this kind of seasonal conditions, the waves are down, the line this will be when you'll get peak coral, this will be when you get peak algae, mm-hmm. and you can you can predict the natural flow. And they could. And you can, and that didn't surprise many people. And probably the next bit doesn't surprise people, but It's just there's not been evidence on this scale. And so then they went and looked at the impact science and they measured all the same stuff and you couldn't predict it. Mm. You just couldn't predict anything. And... It was different depending on what the kind of human impact was. And so, what, what they decided was here, was here was very strong evidence that a normal ecosystem on a coral reef was driven very strongly by the physical conditions.
0: So, like the waves, the, waves, and the temperature, the sunlight, the temperature,
1: the yep. time of the year, which brought all those things. Yep. Yeah, all that stuff, the local climate, etc. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> when humans get involved, those two things are decoupled, that link is broken. Mm -hmm. and so you you just couldn't predict it Hmm. and so what they had to do was then they had to go specifically to a specific site and look at the kind of impact humans were having whether it be you know changing the dynamics by building piers and jetties and groins or changing the nutrients by flooding you know all kinds of stuff into the ocean etc and then you could start to to tease out what it was but that that straight physical biological relationship that the Mm. coral reefs you could still see on those low impact coral reefs was blown apart and so one of the kind of you know, the golden, what is it, the golden, know, the $64,000 million questions for ecologists to be able to predict what happens. Mm. You know, really, you know, like meteorology is a great science because it can predict tomorrow you know gets it more than 50 percent right every time (laughs) which is better than punters Mm -hmm. and so you know ecology i think always been aiming for that and i think that you know what this is saying is that you're just going to need to understand specifically those little impacts and what they said was if you wanted to manage those impacted islands you had to take them very context specific so one by one you had to really look look at at it now if it's this this and this then we're predicting this this and this change, Mm -hmm. didn't get it right every time. Mm. So that I thought was really interesting, strong evidence
0: of that yeah it's almost breaking yeah the system from from the nature's cycles and certainly being an ecologist yeah. I noticed all the different cycles that are out there whether they be on you know, a short- term or long-term seasonals and a year's decadal you know and a lot of them are climate related and you see that um, playing out in the biology as well and in the ecosystems and certainly yeah when you're humans involved you tend to break some of those those links between between the cycles and the, and the systems so and the thing that makes that drives the cycle then moves to something else mm. and moves to the,
1: so that was very interesting and I think in a way I read that and i kind of went Ser- seriously are we honestly is that not why is that a surprise i mean it seems like there's been a lot of evidence and knowledge about that for a long long time even when i was an you know, ecologist you know, in short pants but it's um i think at the scale you know that that was that was right across the sea- seasons it was right mm. across the pacific ocean it was right across a particular type of ecosystem i think yeah. that's the first time it's ever been done yeah wow so
0: anyway oh, interesting on. one yeah for sure Oh, good. You got another one? Yeah, I've got an update. Um, last year, late last year, I did a story on uh, slavery in the fishing oh, yes, and aquaculture industry, um, in aquaculture industry, particularly in focusing on Southeast Asia, uh, where there were um, a lot of well, it's kind of slavery or indentured labour to the extent where it is, is pretty much um, slavery, where you have a debt and that debt is mostly not being paid off, so they can they take your passport and you know the yeah those those that are that are holding you like that so. So um, basically a lot of that was in Thailand um, yeah, and around sort of based in Thailand. But there's a news story that I was read um, actually for the Daily Mail website, but um, it was a re- really great story um, and showed evidence of slavery um, in Indonesia. And this was, again, uh, mainly Burmese uh, people who had basically left their their country and the way that they had left it, or the conditions that they come, often through Thailand. Mm-hmm. Um, they basically then were taken as as slaves. They may have uh, basically sold people smugglers and you know, and so on. And then they sent them off. Or it, anyway, there's a lot of different ways it can happen. But we're talking about very desperate and very poor people. Um, and anyway, they've they've they found on a number of isolated Indonesian islands camps of basically. Fishing slaves who um, who are living on these islands and who who um, are taken out onto the boats and you know for days at a time and so on and uh, yeah so they can't escape they don't have any yeah basically they're just, just held there and uh, which and is terrible absolutely terrible news. This is fishing this for the local. <clears throat> Market no, or so this is fishing. Everything or? that they caught uh, went back to Thailand, um, and they actually traced one shipment of uh, squid, snapper, groper, and shrimp. Um, they, they took it back to a Thai, a th- uh, traced it back to a Thai harbour, then to processing plants, and then for basically processing plants for mainly frozen goods that were sent all around the world. Oh um, and some of that was sent to the largest seafood group um, in in the area, which is Thai Union Group, who own a number of the brands, which I'm not going to talk about, which we would see on our shelves. In the supermarket, so that's it's significant. The, this this fish may be ending up um, in the products that we eat, and this is the kind of a black hole. It's a very long chain yeah, from yeah, from the, where we eat mm. all the way back to those islands in the Indonesia. But yeah. and it's very difficult to see any form of transparency. We're only kind of seeing yeah. this now by some really great journalism. And it's a bit like when um, when when uh, investigative journalists started breaking apart
1: the origins of our clothing. Mm. Similar, you know, it's yep. exactly you know, and and big companies mm. who were you know, unbeknownst to them, yep. their suppliers of suppliers of suppliers were using slaves somewhere, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden they all went, hang on, no, that is not what we want, <laughs> and they reacted and changed it. So the so the balls in the industry is caught to kind mm. of be horrified, <laughs> and and change that yep. supply chain.
0: And I think it's very important it to to think that when you're buying very cheap seafood. Yeah, Just consider consider the p- p- possibilities of why that's cheap. How interesting! Whoa. I've
1: got to ask. Yes, yes. The sir. great
0: maritime expansion. Yes. Um, so we're talking about the South China Sea now okay. for that for the next bit. So, so that's so.
1: the bit that's like below Japan and China, goes right across near Vietnam.
0: Yeah, it's kind of if you if you trace the coastline down from China down down Vietnam, and then across um, sort of the top of Borneo, yep. and then. Up the Philippines. Philippines. Yeah, and that so that that's kind of forms this okay. big sort of, this long oval, like, um, oval egg shape. That's a good thing. Egg. Thing. It's, thing. Egg, egg, yes. egg. Egg shape. Um, around it's there. That south is south of China. S- yeah, yeah. So- yeah, and it's south of China, hence the South China Sea. Now, thing. look, so there's been territorial disputes over these oh, waters for like a long time, forever. a long, long, long time. But um, it's only in, in recent years that it's really ramped up and really the, I guess, it's ramped up by all those parties I just mentioned, so Malaysia, uh, Vietnam, Philippines, China, but it's very clear that China has a lot stronger intention and has a lot more resources Mm -hmm. to put into this particular um, dispute, as we call it, over the South China Sea. And some of our listeners may have seen some articles um, recently but also the last couple of years about how this actually manifests. So I just want to start with about about China's claim because that's sort of the the most um, important one, I think. And they claim over 90% of the South China Sea, even... Well into the exclusive economic zones of all those countries I just mentioned. So, right. so you've got an exclusive economic zones, two hundred nautical miles. Basically, it's yours to do with as you will from your coastline. However, China um, claims that air, claims area well into that, as in to the almost you know quite close to the close coastline of Philippines in some in some um, instances. And um, that's because it's more than two. It, like the space is less than two hundred kilometres. No, 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 oh. no, no. Oh. And we're talking about claiming waters over a thousand kilometres from the mainland oh, of China. Oh, right. I was we're thinking. Talking, that, no, no, no. Oh. Oh. We're talking a, a very long way from China, so it's um, conceivable you could have two
1: 200-kilometer zones. They wouldn't butt up against each other. Oh, absolutely. I was thinking this
0: was so you could come 200. off. No, oh. no. So the, so the, the coastline <clears throat> of China is the 200 nautical miles is a very long way from the majority of, well, oh. from from these disputed areas. We're talking yeah, over a thousand kilometers away from the Chinese mainland, and they're are being disputed and claimed by China. Right. So the, the way they do this is through historical rights. So sure. you're able to, through I, I imagine through the law of the sea. I, I'm not quite sure on that though. Um, able to say. Well, this is mine by historical um, by historical rights. So we have always fished here. We have always used these. We've always inhabited this particular area. So therefore, by historical rights, obviously the countries around there, the Philippines and Vietnam in particular, say no, that's not not case. Well, we've actually done. Actually, we so have so too. It's yeah. disputed, and it's currently still disputed at the UN. So that's why um, at the moment they're all sort of squabbling and fighting over it, not fighting physically, Mm. but um, over it, um, but they all have their claims in.
1: Can I just, um, a little bit of clarification for me, because I don't know the law of the sea that well, but I do understand that it's based on land. So you actually have to, you know, you can measure something out from land, or you're saying that you can just have a... A general ownership Like the Vikings could say The bit to the left of Ireland Because we used to go there a lot (laughs) That's ours
0: Well, yeah So again Getting back to the law of the sea um, There's there's a difference between An island and a rock And this is going to become Very, very important. Um, uh, but you so, do have
1: to have some hard substrate somewhere. Yeah, that's the idea. Base, yep.
0: You say, oh, we have 200 kilometres from this blob. Mm-hmm. So there's actually very few uh, islands in the South China right. Sea, but there are a number of shoals. So there are a number of coral reef shoals so and sort of bits. shallow bits, basically, and sometimes may, when the tide is low, be exposed some sandy sort of areas, right? right?
1: Really low tide, low moon. Yeah, that's right.
0: So these aren't Islands, in the sense of, yeah, well, being that might able be in to. three hundred to 600 years. Well, we don't so, know. You know but, but we'll get to knows, that, knows, maybe yeah. tomorrow. Anyway, <laughs> we'll. So what happens if you, if you own an island, yeah. you can have your exclusive economic yeah. zone, 200 nautical miles around yeah. that island as a little, you know, yeah. as a ring. So yeah. that's yours. Unfortunately, right, at the moment and then for all these guys, no, there's no islands there. And then when you've
1: got like them butting up against each other, like say Indonesia or Australia, you negotiate. You say, well, let's draw it halfway
0: or we'll yeah. go closer to here or that's whatever. It. And you negotiate a line. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Okay. Yeah. Of course, that's what China's probably doing, isn't it? So yeah. yeah. Well, lines. no, not <laughs>
0: quite. So all the other countries are only claiming their exclusive economic zone. Okay. It is only China that is, is going beyond that. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is for us is bizarre. If 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 some if if in Australia here a country came and, and claimed sort of our exclusive economic zone, it would be. Yeah. Anyway, if just like if Papua New Guinea said, actually no, we're having the bit that's just right up there in Darwin Harbour. Hmm. Anyway, I want to I want to go through a little bit of the history because it's really fascinating how this is planned out. So back in two thousand and twelve, it started with archaeology. Oh, wow. Yeah, because the the, China, the Chinese um, patrol boats actually prevented a French-Filipino expedition from excavating um, a wreck, which was within a Filipino exclusive economic zone waters. And now they own, they patrol, they're always on the lookout, and they only allow Chinese archaeological teams to work in the South China Sea. And the idea behind this is to provide evidence for the historical claim. Oh, my goodness. Right? So to find that there are sort of, yeah, you know, evidence yeah. of change. However, there's also a lot of counterclaims, and this, these are certainly not um, – this is sort of, there are claims that have come up, that they're being very selective in what in what they're <laughs> finding. And also, and there is no – I can't find no no evidence for this, but that, that they may be actually moving or creating fake um, uh, sites, archaeological f- sites <laughs> to present this. But I, I have no evidence for that whatsoever. Well, like, like but, oh, um, look, there's a thousand terracotta figures, here, off that's the coast of <laughs> anyway. That's that's a potential, so that's, re- that's really uh, fascinating. But in last year is when it really hotted up. So, um, in May 2014, China erected an oil rig in Vietnam's exclusive economic zone, mm. which led to and uh, this yeah, was actually quite, um, uh, yeah, quite a terrible outcome because that led to riots in, in Vietnam where a number of people were killed, mm. Chinese factories were burnt down. So, it was very strong nationalism sort of around that, um, and that sort of created a, little, a lot of tension. So, you know, it's getting to the point where is there's not no deaths mm. on the water. There's on land, because of this, mm-hmm. um, because of this sort of yeah, national nationalism behind it. Um, but displacing fishing has been going on for a very long time, particularly in the Philippines uh, side of things, and around Scarborough Shoal um, that was mid last year, um, where Filipino fishermen have been working for decades, if not centuries. China now completely patrols them with patrol boats and, and won't right allow them. Right and this is with again within the exclusive economic zone of, um, of of the Philippines. So you know they're sending a serious presence. You know, we're talking about warships, we're talking about they, patrol boats. We're talking about, and are they making on these shoals? Are they physically also building mm. structures? So, th- so this is the, this is the next one, which has created, um, I guess, a bit more media because it's fascinating to watch the timeline of some of these. Basically, a coral reef shoal, maybe a long way from anywhere. You know, mm. as it's not even above the waterline, turn into islands because. <laughs> Um, China has it's got these massive um, dredges that are basically sucking up the sand and turning coral reef atolls into sand islands, which could, I guess, you know, from, from our point of view, it's like, oh, God, we're losing all that coral. But anyway, that's not obviously uh, of their concerns; there's strategic um, interests here. And so, yes, you can see these amazing islands being created over time um, with, you know, concrete structures, with buildings, with helipads and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> and so this comes down to the definition of an island and a rock. Right. So a bit of coral above the water is a rock and it is very, if you own that, it, you give. You know, you, you own a cup of, you, you own a little bit around that, you know, right, there's yeah. a little bit of yeah. But if you own an island, bang, if you have people like on got it, you've got 200, 200, miles. 200 uh, nautical oh. miles around that. So the push here is to actually create islands, get people on those islands and then you can start and putting your claim <clears> as, as, a, as your economic zone. And if you make that island, it's going to have nothing. There's going to be no
1: fresh water. No. There's going to be no... Anything, no. probably not trees. No, no nothing. trees or
0: anything, but
1: uh, but but if you've put a structure and you've got some water and you can people live there and you heavily
0: subsidise it by bringing things in, it's mm-hmm. still an island. Yeah, and I must mention that some of the other How countries involved in this have also done, uh, have created I did small see a islands. Vietnamese, yes, version of that. And so, yeah. particularly there was small Vietnamese, but also I think the Filipino uh, uh, Navy I think crashed one of their ships onto <laughs> an atoll and now have manned that ship with marines um, <laughs> to, to, to take their claim. So I mean I can't say it's all in China. here. Yeah, they've all been doing it. Um, but China just has the resources yeah, and the intention to do it on such a scale. Now they've got six islands up to up to three kilometers long, um basically in the middle of nowhere. So, so it's up to three kilometers long yeah, from just a kind of an intertidal
1: shoal yeah, yeah, cover
0: the whole thing. So. it's just interesting because if
1: you want to do this, there's no real way to stop anybody so
0: creating creating an artificial, artificial island is not illegal particularly whether it, when it 's in your waters or your you water claim, claim. Right. because their claim is official at the UN yeah. they can do what they want with the water it 's just it's disputed and the UN says work it out guys so there's actually <laughs> the Philippines and, and Vietnam have have, have put How a number of of um, sort of complaints and, and taken it to tribunals at the UN <clears> um, <throat> but at the moment the indications is that uh, China doesn't want to turn up China doesn't turn up So because it sees that it's their land so yeah, it, look well, watch, this watch, this space. watch this space I mean it's fascinating go and have a look at those photos online of these things mm. being developed but just watch this space in terms of, of how this escalates and so hopefully it does not but it's yeah. So
1: it's is this the, is this around the Spratly Islands? Spratly Islands yeah. is, is one of them. Yeah. yeah okay. So that's a, a so Spratly I'm just giving shop. people a name to Google if you want to look at these. Yeah. South China Sea island creation. Yes. Yes. It's amazing. <laughs> hey, um, wow. Thank you for that. So in this last little bit, though, I wanted to to talk about marine urbanisation the mm. urban sprawl in the marine environment. So when I say that, what do you think of, John?
0: Marine urbanisation, I mean, uh, first up, I just think about people building close to the to the, uh, edge of the coast, the coast no, basically, but then that. I thought about, well, ah, oh, actually, we're building on the water? Yeah. Or and then I, then my mind goes, <laughs> are we building under the water? <laughs> well, we'll get to that. <laughs>
1: um, so uh, it's basically the urban sprawl, it's been called. It's a, it's a kind of a movement that's coming out of um, a bunch of marine ecologists, some in Australia, in Europe and in the US in particular, saying that look we're building so many artificial structures in the ocean and on the coast like right in the water that we need to start thinking about just not their engineering properties and so basically um, they're trying to get a sense of the potential ecological impact that comes from building those structures so I'll give you some statistics in areas of Europe USA and Australia and Asia more than 50% more than 50% of the car coastline is modified by hard engineering.
0: Is that in sort of uh, bays and sort of coastal? Like, yes. Yeah, we wouldn't but be obviously beyond a hard coastline. I mean, we're talking about um, no, sort of around cities and now, so on, or no, are we talking no, about all over the place? Over so, the place. Wow. So.
1: You know, it can be right along ah. structures of the coast where you've got people building right up against right. relatively flat, and then all of a sudden you need to protect those ah, properties. So you've so got the and sea breakwaters, waters, those gra- sort of things. groins. So it's not just in the cities. Okay, no, right. No, no, it can yeah. be right along the coastlines where yep. you, but, but, but where you've got something. Sometimes mm. it's built built to protect agricultural land yep. as well. So you know, these areas where you've got more than fifty percent of the coast is modified mm. in those regions, and so then, and a lot of them they can be offshore. So they're there to stop erosion and, and, um, oh, and so, also so just to big. create recreational activity, you know, spots as well. Um, you know, marinas and marinas, I guess, creating little the lagoons and, that and so on. Yeah, all platforms, all kinds of offshore right. mining. You know, yeah. okay, and all these things are, are created in a way, and they have about four different types of impact. Um, according to this, this particular group of ecologists, they can have direct physical disturbance. So you know, it affects whatever's happening there physically. Um, you you change the artificial habitat, so you add something, and generally, you're adding hard surfaces to mm-hmm. areas where it's just been soft. Been soft, yeah. So it's been sand or mud, yep. And you're adding hard surfaces. Mm -hmm. And everybody out there um, knows that they have different animals and plants that live in them. So you probably are changing what lives there. Mm -hmm. Um, There's indirect physical disturbances as well. So if you put uh, a breakwater in a particular area, then further down the coast, it might change the way the water flows. Mm -hmm. So you haven't actually physically disturbed that bit, but you've created a change in the flow, which has affected the Mm -hmm. beach scour or something further down the coast. And then, of course... Of course, they also, some of them, have noise and light pollution. Because there's you know, marinas and oh, yeah, you know, some of sure. them are operating. So yep. anyway, these guys have come up with this really interesting framework so they say, okay, so we've got this thing. It's not going to stop. It's going to get more. We're going to have more of these types of structures in particular because we're going to be protecting our our economic assets more mm-hmm. and we're going to, you know, with, tide, with sea level rise, so we're going to have to actually change the way mm-hmm. we think about this. So they've started to flip it around and say, well, okay, so if we're going to do this, and then there's one other future for And that is people are starting to think about growing things in the ocean at mass scale. So aquaculture has been happening for a long time, but also ocean-based agriculture. Mm. And, you know, putting big pontoons where you grow things that normally grow on land Mm. vertically and all kinds of stuff is being talked about. Right, so aqua- floating Fla- floating agriculture, agriculture as well as coupled with a- a underwater aquaculture. So you have these structures mm-hmm. and you, and, and, so, and an example is decommissioned oil rigs. So mm-hmm. some oil rigs have been there 40, 50 years and they are really important parts of the local habitat in a mm-hmm. sense of attracting fish. And so some people are saying, well, why don't we leave them, enclose them, Take the top off, and you've got this fantastic sea pen mm. for for you know feeding up fish and, and having aquaculture. <laughs> and they say, well, if you leave the top on, and then you cover it with some kind of agricultural, you know, layered agricultural <laughs> kind of activity, then you can grow vegetables upright. Wow! <laughs> and you can grow, and you've got no you know kind of other contamination issues of nearby land practices because you're all alone so it's just anyway so some there's all kinds of future kind of thinking (laughs) and then of course people are just thinking about recreational stuff so in dubai and others they build islands and whatever you know drop the hat yep oh let's build another island Island in the shape of a yeah whatever you want chicken that's right i I want the chicken's head and so these guys are saying well let's get ahead of this on land we've been playing catch up with terrestrial urban design and you can see that now around the City, you see, you see, you know, building gardens, and mm. in France there's some rules now where you can, you need, if you, if you're building new buildings, X percent of it has to be covered in, mm. in greenery. Yep. You know, so and that helps with um,
0: air quality. It helps with um, runoff reduction, all kinds of. Stuff. And you certainly you see that around sort of the creeks and rivers, particularly around, around Melbourne. Yep. Was, they yep. used to sort of just be concrete channels, and but it, now it, we're realising actually that creates a lot of problems. So we're actually trying to revege them yeah. re- and revegetate them and create some, something which is a bit more natural because actually. Slows the flows and does a whole lot of good things. Yeah, and so yeah. that's what these guys are saying.
1: They're saying, well, why don't we just take an opportunity before we start to to, to design these things mm-hmm. in the ocean willy-nilly? And they've been mainly designed in ecological, uh, sorry, e- engineering grounds. So, does it work mm. as a marina? Does it work as a great board? And what these guys are saying is, well, think about the social, recreational, ecological, and engineering needs. Mm-hmm. And so, when you build one of these things, think about it as a place that might, yeah, sure, it it's, makes boats safe, but it might. Actually Actually, be a great place for aquaculture for lobsters, mm. you know, and/or other things. And yep. so they've come up with this kind of framework, and they've said and they call it multifunctional targets for ecological engineering. And there's seven things that they think you should you should look to do when you build these things. You should um, you should maintain local native biota. So a lot there's a lot of evidence that if you put in oh, you know, you put in a hard substrate where there was soft, you're losing the native... No but if you design it in a way where it gives nooks and crannies for the soft stuff, you can actually, you know, maintain the locals as well as changing the, you know, the dynamics of, of this, the system there. Other times, if it's all gone, you know, if there was something there and you're basically rebuilding it, you could, should think about restoring the local biodiversity. So, for example... You can, if you shift from adding something that's just a standard blank wall for coastal protection, um, in an area that's had kelp mm-hmm. previously, but it's all you know kind of eroded away. You could design it so the kelp can stick to it, mm-hmm. and you can you can re-promote the kelp coming back. And they've done this off the coast of California, where they actually put artificial kelp reefs mm-hmm. where they were scoured out. Um, you could maintain regional biodiversity. So you could decide that, okay, in this whole area, You've got these, essentially, these islands of certain types of biodiversity. And if you're going to have to add a hard structure, and they they talk about oil um, platforms as one. And, in fact, really interesting make the comment that oil platforms are kind of like marine protected areas, (laughs) hard substrate marine protected areas, because you're not allowed to fish near them. (laughs) You're not allowed to drive near them. Mm -hmm. And they're actually, the only people that go there are the the oil workers. (laughs) And as long as there's not an accident, they're actually pretty clean environments in a sense, ecologically speaking. And so um, they kind of like, well, so therefore, you know, <laughs> don't decommission them. Leave them there and think about them on a regional scale mm. as hard substrate. And then, of course, if you decide to net them in, you can turn them into aquaculture yeah, zones yeah. as well. So it's just really That's interesting. And then they're saying, so when you build these hard substrate walls, for example, um, use a locally fished sh- um uh, shell, you know, a mollusk. Mm. You know, if you're in off the coast of New South Wales, use Pacific oysters. Mm-hmm. If you're in Victoria, use flat oysters. You know, like build in your local kind yep. of fish product, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you've got your kind of your seawall yep. doing your thing, but it's actually filtering mm. the water extraordinarily, mm-hmm. which is another thing. So, okay, so maintaining mm-hmm. water quality is, the, is one of the other ones. Um, so they've got this fantastic statistic where um, the. I'm trying to work out... Here it is. Yeah, so there's particular um, aquaculture zones, which, you know, when fish are in those big pens, they poo a lot. Mm. So it increases a lot of those nutrients, and so mm-hmm. you get a lot of um, uh, phosphates and nitrates and stuff. So they've, they've done these fantastic big-scale trials where they've put a lot of bivalve filter feeders in there, mainly oysters, yep. and... And they suck it all they out. suck it all out, know, yep. so they suck it up 72%, 86% of phosphorus, yep. 72% of nitrates. Mm-hmm. And as long as you don't eat those, because <laughs> they, they might have all kinds of other stuff in them, that's the other thing because they suck up all kinds of stuff. Um, that's what this, at least that's what the authors are saying. Mm. They may or may not be okay for, for human consumption, those ones. But the fish are fine. Mm. And so if you then build those structures with their bivalves in them, you're actually... Offering recreational activities because people can fish. You know, you're offering the mm-hmm. structure and you're offering the filtering.
0: Yep. So then, so this is moving mm-hmm. from beyond those. You know, most of them are built with massive bits of concrete or massive bits of yeah. rock and just sort of jumbled all together it's about getting a little bit more um, uh, directed or a little bit more complicated than that really exactly. isn't it it's yeah. about sort of creating the types of habitats that native species might want, might want to live in and also being able to, it's almost sort of ideas of, of, of implanting them with certain species yeah. as well certainly when it comes to the shellfish and so on so can you start the community artificially but it's a native, a native community that you actually want to foster.
1: Yeah and so as long as you pick the thing the native community is more like Likely to, to live on because mm. a lot of those floating pontoons, for example, you know, in marinas, mm. there's just nothing that's ecologically similar, so natural yeah, environment. And so yes, what it does true. is
0: encourages exotic species. Well, that's sort of the, the same thing as harbors. When you have still water, uh, still salt water, that's not something that naturally occurs in Australia, and so that's why you get a lot of these invasive species that have come from areas that actually like that. And so if you change the shape of the surfaces or mm-hmm.
1: the, or the, and it doesn't cost that much more, mm-hmm. and so their argument is that you could do those things we talked about plus provide. Extra educational recreational opportunities, plus support agriculture and food um, um, production. And then one of their big ones too is facilitate carbon storage. So you pick the right types of, you know, marine plants and algae and you can actually sequester more carbon as well. Mm-hmm. And so they've got this kind of seven levels of wow. things. And, and, and what all they're basically asking is for the, the marine architects, the people, the engineers, to think more broadly than just the engineering mm kind of need and think about these other elements well, it's really, quite interesting i article. really
0: hope that they can get that message across to the right people and they can start incorporating this and certainly if some some companies might be involved in this it might be a good way for them to sort of you know show their sustainability credentials their environmental credentials and so on so yeah look forward to seeing that and it's interesting to get ahead of the wave of marine urbanization yeah there'll be some people that might struggle
1: yeah anyway here's that oh there's that music ah well thanks for a great show and you too. We could thank our guests. Thank you, John. Ah, well, thank you. Thank Anne. you, Anne.
0: And thank you, Kent, for taking <laughs> phone calls.
1: And stay uh, tuned uh, for the doctors they're massing out there in, in their numbers. <laughs> and next week, I won't. I think Bronzeback. back Bronzeback. Bronze back. back from hey. back from up the coast, actually. Right. So get ready for that one. Now, good.
0: This has been a podcast uh, from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne.